story time again. If you want to know where Ian Bird is, look for a drum set or a United Blood Services van. If you know the story of the Bird family, you know what I mean. In 2007, Ian was living the dream, married to his wife, Alyssa. Their son, Liam, was two and a half years old, and Ian was fully immersed in a journey, as he says it, to rock stardom. If you know Ian, you can hear him say that. He's in a band, they had albums, a label, and they toured, and it was fun, and they had a trajectory that they were excited about. Alyssa was pregnant with their first daughter, her second child. They were thrilled. The family was thrilled. Everyone was just thrilled. Liam would have a sister and they would have a daughter. Then around 2007, things started to unravel. The record label started to get a little weird. It stopped answering the phone, stopped sending checks. That's not a good sign. This is how Ian supported his family. That's a problem when your employer isn't answering the phone or sending money anymore. And the band sort of unraveled at a number of levels. Ian watched his dream shrivel up before his eyes and a number of his friendships on the rocks, difficult years. Then on the evening of no- and then on November 29th, the bottom fell out. A tragedy struck his family at home. At about seven months pregnant, the night before, on the 28th, Alyssa experienced some new and persistent pains. In the morning, they decided to go to the hospital. In the triage room, the nurse grabbed the fetal heart monitor to check the baby's pulse. She searched for a while. Everyone's nervous, of course. Mm, No sure indication of anything either way from the nurse. She goes to get the doctor. Doctor comes in with a portable ultrasound. And three other nurses that stood behind Ian and Alyssa. And as they look back, they know why those nurses were there now think they knew what they would find. Doctor searched for a few minutes, then finally sits back and says it, and I don't envy you who have to do this. He says, we can't find a heartbeat. Alyssa had a fully concealed placental abruption. In other words, the placenta pulled away from the uterine wall where the baby gets its nutrition, other support, and the baby died. In Ian's words, quote, the best I can describe it, it was like gnashing and wailing and writhing and guttural screaming, no, from Alyssa, immediately. This is a moment, it's the kind of thing that's etched into my head that I'd like to bury. I had the doctor check twice more, nothing, and I was numb. Ian calls Alyssa's mom, Alyssa's mom cries, Ian calls his own parents, they cry, everyone's upset. Friends are flying in. People are buying plane tickets. Arrangements are made at the funeral home. Over the next few days, they were able to spend time with their daughter, though now dead. Quote from Ian, she was 31 weeks and she was perfect. Not a scratch on her. She was bigger than our son when he was born. It's really confusing sitting there going, why? She's perfect. Why can't she just live? Why would God do this? And so Satan had a field day with us. We need to back up just a little bit because there is more difficulty in the course of this birth, stillbirth, and that Alyssa almost died. She required 14 bags of blood. I guess she had to take in more blood than the body holds. She was losing so much blood because of a blood disorder that she has. 
He almost lost his wife. Praise the Lord, she's with us, and the Lord preserved her. Ian says in the weeks and months and years following, of course, there are aftershocks. One of them is when you go to the mailbox and Huggies is so thoughtful as to congratulate you and send you a sample infant diaper. You know, I'd never thought of that. Every one of your forms of suffering, and there's plenty in this room, come with its own catalog of unique uh, hits that other folks won't understand or, or know what's going on. Sometimes you may be talking to somebody months later after something has hurt, hurt them, and maybe they just got an infant diaper in the mail. Maybe they just got an infant diaper in the mail. Not easy. Ian said he spent those months trying to intercept the mailman so Alyssa wouldn't find these things, making calls to companies to try to stop the emails and stop the phone calls with more and more congratulations and pitches for products and whatnot. Then the, then the label folded for his band. They got a two-week notice for the end of their health insurance and bills for ultrasounds for a baby that wasn't alive started to show up. Just a hard time for this couple. That's Ian and Alyssa Bird's story. And you have your own. The Bible, the Bible thankfully isn't, uh, doesn't, doesn't sidestep these things. The Bible addresses our suffering head on. I was on a plane a few months back. I'm sure you're familiar with the short video that they often show of uh, what to do you know, when the plane's going down. Um, how to use your seat as a flotation device, where the exits are at. Uh, it struck me as a little goofy when uh, it showed a picture of the plane and then like an extra raft popped up and it said, some planes have an extra raft. I'm like, oh, great. This is so exciting, an extra raft. I hope our plane has the extra raft. And a lot of times it's either a cartoon or a, kind of a digitized person putting on their, air, their mask. But this one was a picture of a mom and her daughter kind of like going to Disneyland and putting on the masks. And it was just all too happy. It's too happy. There is no context in which those air masks will pop down in which you're still thinking about Disneyland uh, that I can think of. Now, I get it. They don't need to show a video of how that might actually look. But it's a reminder, isn't it, that we don't like to think about how things can go, the bad stuff in life. You see there's a disconnect between that video and what it was portraying and what would actually go down. But the Bible doesn't avoid reality of suffering at any point or in any measure. It sure doesn't in the book of Job. The Bible confronts our hardships head on. And while Job's suffering is extreme in a way we can't relate to, we can relate with Job. In fact, Job's suffering was extreme. It was extreme, but Job is given to us, the book is given to us, not for those people who suffer like, like difficulties, like lose 10 children. The book would be relevant for almost no one. Uh, it's relevant for all of us. It's given to all of us. It's given to God's people. We watch a man in this book suffer right before our very eyes. This month we've heard a number of stories of suffering from around our congregation. It really only scratches the surface. One thing I found out that I did not anticipate, although I could have if I would have thought about it, is just how beat up you all are. Uh, you look great, but life is trashed, you guys. You guys have been through some stuff, and all of you have different kinds of suffering. And if you haven't been there yet, the Lord has given you much. The Lord will take away before it's over. He will take away. Some sufferings are cyclical, you know, anniversaries. Some sufferings involve a catastrophe, a massive event that has ripple effects down the years and into other dimensions of life. Some involve acute and debilitating pain. They're all real. When you're in the middle of this, you ask the question, naturally, does this get better from here? Does it get better? 
When the plane keeps losing altitude in what feels like a nosedive, it's hard to think about your exciting planned destination. And you may be there now, feeling like you're in a nosedive. It can't get better. Well, there were times when Job didn't even feel like he'd bother with the question. He could only look back. And this is one of the plagues of suffering is that we can only look to the past and remember the good times. We cannot imagine good times ahead. In Job 29, he says, Oh, that I were as in the months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness, as I was in my prime, when the friendship of God was upon my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were all around me. And you can imagine. Job can only remember what has been. And if he thinks forward at that moment, he can only imagine what could have been, but cannot imagine what will be. But today's text will teach us to look forward and to look forward with great hope and with a great big smile. Please open with me in your Bibles to Job chapter 42. Job chapter 42. This is it, folks. This is number five, the end of the book. It's the last page in Job's story. On the first page of Job's story, we met the guy, blameless, good husband, father, good businessman, respected in his community and in the ancient world. 3,000 camels, cool guy. We're taken to heaven to listen in on a meeting. Satan was allowed permission to speak. He insisted, no man obeys you, God. No man obeys you, God, because uh, you're good, only because of what you do for people, the gifts you give them. God said, take my servant Job. Do whatever you want to him. Take everything but his life. Satan insisted he would curse God to his face. Of course, Job held his integrity. And we listened to him entertain Job, some of the darkest questions we can ask, questions we can resonate with, questions that we ask when we suffer greatly. Why? Job's why question was, why, am I even, why was I even allowed to live? Gets to that point. Why wasn't I still born? Job asks. Job never questioned the sovereignty of God, only whether God knew what he was doing and whether God was good. And Job had done nothing wrong. And Job demanded an answer from God as to why he was suffering. On the chapters immediately before our text, Job has been confronted. Ten chapters of confrontation. And in the verses before our text, Job has repented. Having heard the voice of God, Job says he has seen the Lord. And he repents. No purpose of God's can be thwarted. He should not have asked God to account to him. And now in this last page of the story, we see some loose ends are tied up. And they are tied up, as we will see, in a bow. Verses 7 through 17 of Job 42. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you. For I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house and they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all that the evil, the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. 
And each of them gave him a piece of money and a a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter, Jemima, and the name of the second, Keziah, and the name of the third, Karen Huppach. And in the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among the brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons, four generations. And Job died, an old man, full of days. Well, how lavish, how lavish the compassion and the mercy of God. How lavish the compassion and the mercy of God. The book of Job has been about the sovereignty of God, his ordering of things, all things. It's been about the goodness of God, that God does no wrong. But it is also about the lavish compassion and mercy of God. That's how James put it in the New Testament when he was encouraging Christians Reflecting on the book of Job, James 5.11, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And like a firework that's been going up and up and up and up, now it bursts, boom, right off the page in chapter 42. And it's just stunning. And we need this today. We need this today. Some of us are sitting here in the ashes of our burned down lives, scraping our skin from sores that won't give up. We're alone and we have heard the voice of God in this book and we have bowed down and worshiped to God and his sovereignty and to God for his goodness and we trust him. The God of creation is sovereign and he is good even when our circumstances don't taste that way. But on this last page, we see more that there's more to the story. There's an end to the story. And this last page is here for a reason. It's here to show off the compassion of God for you and the mercy of God toward you, toward his people, represented in the man of Job. Paul agreed, Romans 8.18, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory to be revealed to us that God will show. Who He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us all things? That's how the New Testament talks. That's how the Bible talks. And we'll see, for as much blessing as Job knew in his life, compared to what we know is coming to us, Job had hardly a clue. Hardly a clue. Well, this sermon will unfold in two parts following the two halves of this last part of the book. And then we'll close this sermon in the series with ten takeaways. 10 takeaways when it's all over. So at the end of the story of Job, at the end of Job's story, we see first that Job was a man vindicated by the Lord. Job, a man vindicated by the Lord. This is verses 7 through 9. We'll read verse 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. This happy end ending ends with God angry. No, burning with anger at Job's three friends, Eliphaz being the representative leader of sorts. And hearing that God is angry is actually a good part of the story's end. In terms of 
you know, literarily speaking, it's not a good thing for the bad guys to just ride away at the end of the story. This needs some resolution, and God addresses the three guys and provides some resolution. Who are these guys again? Well, they're the three, three friends of Job that when they heard that Job was suffering, came to him to comfort him. They tore their robes, they mourned, they wailed with Job, and they sat quietly with him for seven days. But we recognize that this wasn't exactly a self-controlled and calculated measure of comfort they were offering Job by being quiet, but more sharing in his hopelessness. Their response to Job was a kind of mourning. Job was saying, I'm as good as dead, and they're saying, Job, you're as good as dead. I have no idea what to say, compounding Job's hopelessness. So Job expressed his grief, and they had answers ready for him, locked and loaded, cookie-cutter answers. Eliphaz was the behaviorist, a real academic about suffering, a real clear answer. What we do leads to what happens to us, simple as that. As I have seen, he said, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Hear and know it for your good. We reap what we sow, Job. Bildad, the second guy, had his own angle when the basic, same basic argument He's the traditionalist, appealing to what our, our forefathers have always believed. For inquire, please, of bygone ages and consider what the fathers have searched out. Zophar was the religionist. He too said basically the same thing, but with a lot of religious zeal and a thick spiritual accent. But oh, that God would speak. He is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. Who could forget this guy? God isn't even giving you what you deserve, Job, as Job scrapes the sores off his body. How many more kids can God take from the guy? None. They're all dead. His advice, if iniquity is in your hand, put it far away. You will forget your misery, and your life will be brighter than the noonday. At least he was trying to be encouraging. What a crock. These guys spoke for God, and they got God wrong. They mixed the world's wisdom with spiritual language and crushed Job's spirit. It's the same Kool-Aid the disciples were drinking years later. In John 9, Jesus passed by. When Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Ian tells me that for no short amount of time after the death of their daughter and the upheaval of Ian's uh, career, that they wondered what they had done. Surely anyone who suffers at all can remember a grievous sin and a, and a degree of rebellion in their own life. And they were just peeling over their life and thinking, what have we done? And this verse here, this encounter with Jesus and a blind man and his disciples was of great relief to Ian and Alyssa, and I hope that it is to you. God is burning with anger at these three dudes. And in case you took this ending as a sign that God rewards faith with prosperity, note that God's anger at these three friends confirms that that's just not the case. It's actually the idea that God's mad about. Don't forget how the whole thing got rolling. Job, Job was God's servant, a blameless man, and he was chosen to suffer precisely because he was blameless. Hmm, let me pick out my most faithful servant. Attack him, Satan, and see what happens, and he'll come out faithful. You see the logic? Job's case of suffering was according to exactly an inverse kind of logic to the logic of these three friends. Of course, there's a pattern to things, faithfulness to God, 
often results in blessing, but it is not always the case. It is not a hard formula that runs the world and that God is beholden to. So Job's three friends, what does God do with these guys? What does God owe, what does God owe these guys? Well, he owes them absolutely nothing. And if he owed them something, which he actually he does, it's his just judgment for their false teaching. He owes them what every sinner deserves, and especially those who claim to teach and talk about him and do so in a false way. And yet God tells them in verse 8, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourself, and my servant Job shall pray for you. For I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. And then they do so, and God accepts Job's prayer. Consider then the compassion and mercy of God. So God is angry here, and it doesn't smell like compassion and mercy, but it's precisely what's going on in this whole section. God has vindicated Job. Job was pounded with accusations in public, and now Job has been publicly vindicated. No, it was not the case that Job had a grievous hidden sin that was the explanation for all of this devastation in his life. And notice that four times in these four verses, God refers to Job as his servant. What better thing to hear on Job's ears? He's met God in a whirlwind, not a rainbow or a patch of sunflowers. God showed up in a hurricane and talked to Job. Very serious was the correction that God offered, and Job repented. And here, God speaks of Job as his servant. How kind of the Lord to speak that way about Job. Job wasn't an earshot, but in the heavenly meetings, we saw in the first two chapters, this is how God spoke of Job. He said, my servant, Job, there's no higher honor. But he's saying this of Job now, and after the things that Job has said, he says, they have not spoken of me what is right, but my servant of Job has. I think he's speaking of Job's confession, where Job has pursued God in prayer. Half of Job's speeches are actually prayers to God for an answer. And often enough, we see that God is, Job is confessing God in a way that is true to who God is. And, God, and Job is seeking out a restored relationship with God, missing what he had with God. And when God shows up, Job has no defense for himself and accepts everything that God has said and repents. And, and in that way, Job has spoken right about God. He's publicly vindicated. But not only has God vindicated Job, he's vindicated Job in a way that gave his friends back. You see, these were Job's friends. They shared life together. They hung out together. These guys knew Job better than anyone, and that's why the things that they said hurt so bad, and you would understand that. If someone close to you has said untrue things about you, well, that's very different than somebody you don't know saying untrue things about you. These guys knew Job. And mercifully, God did not rub it in their faces and swat Job's friends off like stray dogs. These three friends have been clearly humbled. They have not defended themselves. At least we don't read. And they do as the Lord commanded. And God has provided for their restoration in such a way that they would be restored to Job. They have to come to Job, the one that they've wronged and accused. No doubt with the confession and admission that they've been wrong. And Job's prayer is accepted by God, we can only assume, because Job is earnestly praying for their forgiveness and that God would be merciful toward them. And so Job has a forgiving heart here toward his friends and they're restored. And not only has God vindicated Job and in a way that restored these friendships, but God has made a way for these three men to be restored to God. 
God's anger burned against them. He owed them nothing. And yet God did not burn them, but allowed them to burn an offering instead. And they go free. How compassionate and merciful is God. So let's remember that speaking for God to people and their suffering is no small matter. It's a serious matter. These guys had God's anger at them for speaking falsely about God. And let's remember the cruel lie they were in trouble for touting that suffering always is a matter of reaping what we've sown. And this can show up in subtle ways. Pray more. Have more faith. If you're obedient, I know that God will fix this for you. We don't know that. God is not beholden to us. Sometimes things are just nuts. And they're going to be that way. Our hope is uh, the horizon of heaven. And to those who are on the listening end of this stuff, this false teaching, bad counsel, let's remember, as one commentator put it, God is far kinder than any of his followers. Many people will say ridiculous and cruel things. Uh, don't, Don't put that on God. Listen to him. Go to him as Job did in prayer. And let's remember that God offers forgiveness to those who say cruel things to the suffering. If you're suffering, have a forgiving disposition toward those who don't understand. The Lord has vindicated Job. The Lord has vindicated Job, and yet Job is still scraping his sores. His fields are still neglected. His bedrooms at home are still empty. And this is okay with Job. He has seen the Lord, and no purpose of the Lord's can be thwarted. God still owes Job nothing, and Job still owes God his very life, as it is the case for all of us. But consider what God does for Job next. Consider what God does for Job next. In the end, we see Job, a man vindicated by the Lord. And second, we see Job, a man restored by the Lord. Job, a man restored by the Lord. Summary verses, verse 10 and 12. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job and blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. The book of Job is a book of extremes. Extreme blamelessness on Job's part, extreme suffering that follows, and extreme restoration here at the end because of God's extreme, lavish, and marvelous compassion and mercy. If we thought Job was blessed when the book opened, he is more blessed on the other side of the book. The Lord is restored to Job as wealth, verse 10 through 12. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. For every animal the guy lost, he got another one. This kind of resolution can uh, make us a little nervous or uneasy because of the Bible's many warnings against the dangers of wealth. But we're to see this as the blessing of God. Wealth often the sign of prudence and hard work. People come into money other ways, but money itself only exists because people have created it. And Job's a worker. The animals probably did not drop down out of the sky, but were collected over years as Job restarted his business. And the Lord rewarded his labor with production. And in the Old Testament, it is actually built into the structure of the Old Testament that the Lord would bless his people in material earthly ways as a sign of his favor and their obedience. It's just the case that, the point of the book of Job, that it is not always that way. 
So when Job would look out at his now 14,000 sheep, he would think about the kindness of God to restore to him what was lost. And he would think of the kindness of God toward him. The Lord just restored to Job his wealth, and the Lord restored to Job his relationships. You might, you might remember that things had taught, sort of degenerated and in a big way between Job and almost everyone in his life. Perhaps everyone. Job 19, verse 13 and following, Job laments, He has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me a stranger. I become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise up, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I loved have turned against me. Some of this may be colored by Job's perspective and circumstances, one who's suffering. Oh, but this is no picture of people going out of their way to comfort a brother. But now in 42.11, Then came to him all his brothers and sisters, and all who had known him before, and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave to him a piece of money and a ring of gold. Well, comfort is how they should have responded in the first place. And comfort is how they respond now. They come to Job's home and they sit down with him in his home and they eat. How personal. These people humbled themselves before Job. No doubt they had to admit they were wrong. And Job had to receive them. He didn't hold in bitterness against them the way that they had sinned against him. Comforting people who are suffering is a deeply God and people honoring work. And it's actually one way that God himself comforts us. And if you've suffered, do you realize that you have a stewardship to comfort? Second Corinthians 1 tells us, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort who comforts us in our affliction, he does so so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. So as you have been comforted, as you have suffered, and you sit here, you are a tool in God's hands to comfort, to be a comfort to other people. It is not the only reason that God has afflicted you, but it is a thing that God will use you for, and a purpose that he has in your suffering. So accept comfort from your friends if you're suffering. It's how God comforts us. And where there is no comfort, go to the Lord as Job did. He was praying those words to God. And if you're ever tempted to look around this auditorium and think to yourself, everyone in here has got it good. Perfect lives. Well, just don't think that. I know that sounds insensitive, but let me help out with some reasons. In the first place, if it is true, what is that to you? Would your plan be that everyone suffer like you? Right? Because that ought to mean that you suffer like everyone else too, and there's stuff going on in this room you don't know about. And in reality, it's actually not as peachy as you think. I was singing down here moments ago, looking around the room and thinking of stories as I saw faces. I know very few stories relative to the number of stories there are in this room. 
And even if it was true, God has a different lot for you and it won't be long before someone else in this room, someone else's perfect life is ravished by sadness like yours and guess what? God is preparing you to comfort them. So suffering can put us in a position of temptation toward all kinds of sins that are very dangerous for the body. But suffering can also strengthen the body as each of us gives ourselves to the Lord and looks to him and sees our suffering as a means to his care for the body. So the Lord restored Job's wealth and his relationships and the Lord restored to Job his heritage, his heritage, verse 13. He had also seven sons and three daughters and he called the name of the first daughter Jemima and the name of the second Keziah and the name of the third Karen Hepuk. And in the land, uh, and in all the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father gave them inheritance among their brothers. Job's children were not restored to him as from the grave, but for every one that he lost, the Lord gave him another child. God has given him another child for everyone he lost. Notice that the girls are beautiful. In other words, Job received 10 more children and God served them up with a cherry on top. How nice of God. You see, this is, this is a kindness of God. It's a, it's a highlight in the text to show us just how lavish he is. See, Beautiful daughters. And you look at them and think of the kindness of God. And filled with God's generosity, Job overflowed with God's generosity. He gave to his daughters an inheritance, something not required by law and not customary. A godly man. Job, God restored to Job his wealth, his relationships, his heritage, and his health. Verse 16. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. That is a good long life. A good long life, reminiscent of the patriarchs in the book of Genesis. All this restoration is the kind of thing that God does. So in your suffering, remember the end of the book of Job. God is a restorer. He's a restorer of what has been trashed. But for as happy an ending as all this is, the last verse is a sober reminder of something left in the world. Job 42, 17, And Job died an old man full of days. Well, the old man part, that's good. Full of days, that's good. And Job died. Well, we might expect as much. But death is never good. Death is never good. Thankfully, the God who spoke to Job out of the whirlwind, who is king over Behemoth and Leviathan, is not himself confounded by or controlled or constrained by death. This really isn't a problem for God. And thankfully, this earthly restoration of Job is just a one, not just a wonderful way to end Job's story, but a hint toward all that God has promised for his children all that God has promised for his children. And we have reason to believe, Job, that got this, that there's something beyond the grave when he said, for I know that my Redeemer lives and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. And oh, shall we see God. Shall we see God. The Bible describes at the end of the ages an, a final state, a final age called the new creation where everything is right and there is no pain and there is no death and there is no suffering and there is no sadness there. There is only God and his people and eternal joy. Job knew a restored relationship with God and we will be, the scripture says, with him. And he will be with us as our God. He will dwell with us. And we will be his people. 
Job had wealth in his latter days, and the new creation will be lined with streets of gold. Job knew beauty in his latter days, and we will know beauty in our latter days. Job knew relationships in his latter days, and we will know the eternal depth of fellowship with one another in God's presence, free from sin. Free from sin. God knew feasting, and Job knew feasting in his latter days, and we will feast together at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Job knew comfort in his latter days, and God, the scripture says, and I love this, will wipe away all of our tears. Every tear you cry is a tear the Lord will wipe away. He's attentive to those. He knows of them. And Job knew old age in his latter days. And in the new creation, there's what we call a tree of life. Symbolic of the fact that we will never die there in the presence of God. And all of this that's going on at the end of Job is a parable for what God does. The point, the point of Job's ending here is that God in the end bursts with compassion and mercy on his people in lavish ways that we could never have imagined. And not as payment for our obedience. The book of Job should teach us that. But because of God's mercy. So why exactly does God let bad things happen to good people? Why exactly does he let bad things happen to good people? He can do all this. Why evil in their world? I saw a roach a few days ago. He was upside down and he was struggling. I was drinking some juice. I looked at him. Looked at him again, I threw my cup away and walked out of the room. It was a different day, I might have walked over there and crushed him. I just wasn't in the mood. I was happy to let him sit there on his back. So why are we left to suffer? Why are we stepped on? Doesn't the one who runs the world care about us? Are we as a roach to him? But our relationship to the roach, my relationship to the roach, It's not like God's relationship to us. A much better illustration is that of a parent to a child who has to deliver a no at times that devastates the child who doesn't have the whole picture, who has to take the child for shots. You name it, there are a myriad of things that children don't understand for which you as a parent are not obligated to give them an answer. But as their parent, you're the provider and the leader and the caregiver, and as the child, they are the dependent, and they're to trust. And that's how the relationship works. In the book of Job, Job is asked why, and God has said in response, you don't need to know why, you need to know me. Remember Elihu's Elihu's question? Who has prescribed for him his way? Who counsels God? Remember the Lord's question? Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the heaven is mine. God could have said, Okay, Job, you've been strong, and it's been a while. You've been patient. I want to give you the back story. You see, I allowed Satan into my presence, and uh, he told me that no one on earth would obey me or, or be stay faithful to me uh, unless I give them things. And I said, no, 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 use Job. as." He didn't give Job that story. Job still doesn't know that story. He didn't know such thing. And my children should not need to understand or agree with my thinking before they can trust me. My ways are higher than their ways. So don't miss this. God is not answering the why question. He has not answered the why question for Job. He's not done it. Take that as a point of the book of Job. And to apply this very specifically and hear this in love, don't look for very specific reasons for your suffering before you trust God. We can speculate and imagine what God may do and use our suffering for. 
But don't hold out until you identify some reason. In fact, resign that you cannot necessarily know the reason. God is not giving you scripture to explain to you what's going on in your life. And he was giving, he was speaking audibly to Job and didn't tell Job. And so I think it's often the case that when a person is willing to accept, when we're willing to accept a specific reason for great suffering, it's because we're already just trusting God. We just feel like we need a reason. I have a handicapped brother, and I remember growing up thinking, well, you know, my mom works with handicapped kids, and I've got an aunt and some other relatives who work with handicapped kids. God's really, you know, changed my family through time. Is that really why? Is God really that unable to persuade people to care for handicapped kids that he's got to bring brain damage to my brother Tyler to get this done? How about just no handicapped kids? How about that? You see, if you go down that path where you're, you wait to trust God until you can logically, like, understand, oh, that, that effect is great enough for this suffering uh, it's, it's a hopeless spiral. Unless you're willing to resign at some point uh, to uh, an answer that's just satisfactory enough. Job isn't told, but Job is shown God. And so in the book of Job, we see God all glorious and all good. Trust him. Trust him. He has not answered the question for Job why, but he has answered many other questions. He has answered many other questions. So before we close this book up, 10 questions that we have gotten answers to in our time in this series. Ten questions. We'll post them on the blog this week uh, so you can go there for them. One for each of Job's kids. How about that? One for each of Job's kids. First, is God sovereign over suffering and evil? Absolutely. Absolutely. Two, is God therefore evil? Absolutely not. Satan had his sinister and cruel and wicked purpose in coming after Job. He loves death. God had his own different purpose. Is God sovereign over Satan's dealings? Yes. Was God wicked and evil in scheming in his dealings? No. He was vindicating his name and in the process purifying Job's faith from pride. God is not cruel. Number three, does everyone who claims to speak for God actually speak for God? Let's all say this together. No. Okay, good. Is my suffering because of sin? Number four, there are several kinds of suffering in the world. There's good old-fashioned fallen world suffering. The creation is groaning, we're told, so that there are things happening all around us that are an effect of sin in the world and God's curse on the creation. There's foolishness and sin suffering where God gives us over. He gives us what we've asked for and there's a consequence built into the order of the world for the sins we commit. There's disciplined suffering where God is graciously steering us to more faithfulness to him like a parent with a child. We should know when that's the case. It's always right to confess our sins. And then there's senseless and crazy suffering and much, much, much of our suffering is just makes no sense. Job is meant to address this. Question five, is God using my pain for some good purpose? Well, thank God, yes. He is always doing that for his children, Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Who are, who are, those who are called according to his purpose. Those who are called according to his purpose. God is working out many purposes. Paul knew this. In 2 Corinthians 12, he says, To keep me from becoming conceited, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger from who? Satan. 
to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardship, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It was a messenger from Satan, and yet it was something from God to keep him from being conceited. God is at work in suffering. Peter believed as much. First Peter 1, now for a little while he writes, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. That covers the gamut. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, your faith which is more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Satan harasses us in the context of First Peter and persecution and God is purifying our faith to meet Jesus one day. Number six, is it okay to grieve deeply for a loss? Or is it a sign that I'm not trusting God? Well, it's certainly okay to grieve deeply for a loss. Maybe a sign that you are trusting God and worshiping him. That your dire desires are aligned aright. It's a good thing to weep over a baby who dies and to wail. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job wept. Jesus wept at Lazarus' tomb and Paul pleaded with God to take the thorn away. Grief is natural and even good. Should I attempt, number seven, to comfort someone who is suffering incredible loss? Yes. The answer to that one is yes. By all means and with much wisdom, yes. Sometimes with silence, sometimes with a hug, sometimes with space, sometimes with a note, sometimes with a meal. Put your thinking cap on and study the person and understand what is right at the right time. Always by you being available. Sometimes with correction if they are hardening their heart against God. Never with a cookie cutter answer for their suffering. And never an academic, formulaic, uncaring manner. Always with a listening ear. Always with a heavy heart. And always, always, always with much patience. Number eight, am I alone in my suffering? Nope. Job has been there. Many others have gone before you. In fact, suffering is no small theme in Scripture. It is a major theme in Scripture. Without it, we have a totally different Bible. In fact, we have a totally different kind of salvation, if it's even possible. Ask Joseph, who suffered, or Moses, or David, or the prophets who were killed, some sawn in two, or ask Jesus who was despised, accused falsely, and then killed for crimes that he didn't commit. Am I alone in my suffering? Certainly not. And number nine, is there hope for the future? Is there hope for the future? Well, yes, there is great hope for the future. In the story of the Bible, there's a pattern of suffering and a pattern of glory to follow. Suffering to glory, suffering to glory. Watch for it. It is everywhere. Suffering to glory. Ask Joseph or Moses or David or Jesus who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of God. And if you're not a Christian, listen to these words here about Jesus who suffered and is now glorified and why he suffered and how he suffered. Jesus, who though he was, a, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus suffered and then was glorified. Suffered and was glorified. And remember that verse we read at the beginning from James about Job's steadfastness and God's compassion and mercy? That was actually in the context of encouragement to be patient in the course of suffering to wait for Christ's return, upon which we'll be glorified with him. James 5, 7, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Until the coming of the Lord, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. How should we apply the book of Job? Wait patiently as you suffer for the return of Jesus Christ who will put an end to it all. How should we apply the book of Job? Say with Paul, as we've heard today, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously with him give us all things? And one more question. Who can separate us from the love of God in Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or danger, or sword, or the loss of children, or the loss of our jobs, or behemoth, or leviathan, or death, or anything in all creation? None of it can. If God is for us, who can really be against us? Really. If, God is, if it's true that God is for us, death is not even against us. Our God is bursting with compassion and mercy. It sent his son to the cross so that nothing would stop him from lavishing his compassion and his mercy on us. And this is something that Ian and Alyssa have come to grips with. The love of Christ has taken them from heartache to heartfelt song. It was a spring morning when Ian was sitting at a kitchen table thinking about and even grieving the loss of another child in our congregation, some friends of his. It's a different story. Just looking out his window, spring morning, and heard his wind chimes, and then a tune went through his head. He's a musician. I thought, I'm going to write a song. So Alyssa threw down some verse, some poetry and thoughts and reflections on a bunch of scraps of paper, and Ian would sift through it over the next year or two. He noticed a theme emerging the sovereignty and the goodness of God and the life and the death of their daughter. It's coming off of his wife's pen, but he wasn't even quite all there yet to say those things. The other theme was parallel, the sovereignty and the goodness of God and the life and the death of God's son, Jesus. So here are the lyrics of the song they wrote. It's called Sidney's Song, from the hearts of our friends. He gives and takes away We were never meant to stay. You were never meant to stay in our arms. Goodbyes, they come too soon. Our dreams, they died with you. 
that day. And while we trust, our hearts ache for you. And while we live, we live still without you. That first verse being about Sydney, and now a second verse about Jesus. He gives and takes away. He was never meant to stay in this world. Goodbyes, they come too soon. Our hope it died with you and rose again. Hallelujah, this broken heart is his to mend. Hallelujah, he breathes new life in me again. Hallelujah, his, he is peace, the risen lamb. Hallelujah, the sting of death is in his hands. Her empty arms, Alyssa. His father's heart torn in two, the father. Jesus, you came to make the sad untrue. Hush, little baby, cry no more. And so we will cry no more. Yes, God's purposes and suffering are mysterious to us, and yes, we are greatly grieved. Job knew all about that, and many of you do. But through our tears, we can say with Job, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You see, the God who orders suffering also orders salvation. The God who orders calamity also ordered and ordained a cross. And when the Apostle Paul reflected on these things, on suffering and on salvation, he needed language. So guess where he went? He went to the book of Job. And his words will be our prayer, the only appropriate response to God's sovereignty and his goodness and to his compassion and to his mercy today. So let's pray. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Father, how unsearchable are your judgments and how inscrutable your ways. For as Elihu asked, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or as you reminded Job personally from the whirlwind, who has given a gift to you that you might be repaid? No one. For from you and through you and to you are all things. To you be glory forever. Amen.